Hello there. This is George Reeves. Perhaps you know me better as Superman. It's a warm June night when a light flickers on above the front door of 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive. A signal to those welcome cocktails are at the ready. A few hours later in the upstairs bedroom, a man lies naked, dead. A gun on his feet, the man is George Reeves, television Superman. His death ruled a suicide, but is there more to the story than is being told? These are the final hours of George Reeves. So two, one more than we thought we'd make. I am your host, Dustin Norton, here with my amazing co-host. Nadia Carrillo. Hey, really quick, huge thank you to everyone that listened and reached out about our first episode. We appreciate you so much. As always, thank you for being on this journey with us. We're still finding our way with this. Our hope is to release two episodes a month, but at this time we'll be doing one a month. We want to take the time in our research to really give you a great and detailed story. Let's start the show. George Reeves was born George Kiefer Brewer on January 5, 1914, in Woolstock, Iowa, to Helen Lesher and Donald Brewer. Helen was a young mother in her late teens. Five months prior to the birth of her first and only child, she'd marry. Shortly after the birth, though, she would be divorced. She would make her way to California and remarry. That man, Frank Belso, a well-to-do man that came from wine money, Frank would adopt George as his own, even giving his last name to the young boy. Fifteen years later, George arrived back home after visiting relatives to find the only father he ever knew had committed suicide. Since his time in high school, George had two interests, boxing and acting. He was on his way to Golden Gloves, friend Gary Grossman would say. At his mother's behest, though, George would move his focus onto acting. He had a natural charisma. Drawn to physical activity, acting would quickly become a natural fit. George would sharpen his craft at the Pasadena Playhouse, even becoming secretary to the director. George would say this in an interview with the St. Louis Dispatch. I went over to the community playhouse in Pasadena just to learn how to get on and off stage. I would end up staying there for five years and become a Shakespearean actor. The theater had quite the list of alumni, among those Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman. It's at the playhouse George meets his first wife, Eleanor Needles. He had Broadway aspirations, but Hollywood would have something else in mind. In 1940, George would capture his first on-screen role as Stuart Tarleton in Gone with the Wind. He would return back to the playhouse, landing the lead role in a play called Poncho. After the first night, he had offers from several studios to test for them. Warner Brothers would win the bidding, signing the ambitious young actor to a contract, one which obligated George to dye his hair and change his name. Over the course of the next few years, Reeves would play minor roles in some of the studio's biggest hits. His contract would come to an end without a renewal. George would sign then with Fox. In 1942, director Mark Sandrich cast George in the film, So Proudly We Hail. The director was taken aback by George so much that he promised George he would make him a star. He had the power to do so, being president of the Directors Guild and one of the most influential directors of his time. Towards the end of the war, George was stationed in New York City, and was acting in the stage play Winged Victory. 
The play toured throughout the country and even had a movie version. George would be transferred to the first motion picture unit where he would make training films before being discharged. Life after the war was difficult. Many film studios had slowed production and George found himself acting in what can be considered lower than B-rate movies and finding odd jobs, digging ditches and whatever he could to make his way. Eleonora would leave her husband for a well-to-do attorney. She was over the insecure life of an actor. By this time, George had not spoken to his mother for some time. He had found out that Frank was not his real father and had in fact not committed suicide and was very much alive and well. George wasn't alone for too long because he had fallen in love with Tony Mannix. Tony, though, was very much attached to one of the most powerful men in Hollywood land. Eddie Mannix was an executive at MGM, but he was more known for being a fixer. If there was a sordid situation that needed cleaning up, Eddie was the man for the job. He covered up murders, scandals, and made dirty little secrets of the most famous disappear. He had mob ties, and his first wife, who during a nasty divorce, suddenly died under intriguing circumstances. The man had power, respect, and most of all, money. Tony was instantly smitten. She complimented Maddox because Tony could be just as venomous, if anything got in her way. It was an open secret in Tinseltown that the Mannixes had an agreement. Eddie had his young mistress, and Tony had the boy, her nickname for her George. Tony took care of him. She helped him with the down payment on his first home on Benedict Canyon. She spoiled him with a rare convertible of which only five were made. The two lived a peculiar but normal life together, often hosting barbecues and frolicking amongst friends. As for his career, though, Reeves was desperately seeking something to keep his head above water, so enters the adventures of Superman. Reeves beat out over 200 competitors to star in Superman and The Mole Men, a feature film and backdoor pilot for a television show that would make him a household name, but also leave the actor feeling drowned. In 1951, television wasn't considered a serious place for an actor of George's caliber. If anything, it was a burial ground where real actors were cast to never be seen again. Immediately after the film, he agreed to sign on to star in 26 episodes, which in his mind he would collect pay over for the course of the 26 weeks, and nobody would ever see the show. The show didn't air till the following year, but when it did, it took flight. At the end of World War II, there were a mere 6,500 television sets in the United States. Most of these in bar rooms, but... By the time Superman aired, there were over 11 million, and 91% of these sets tuned into The Adventures of Superman. It was even an international sensation, so much so that Japan Emperor Hirohito personally wrote George a letter proclaiming his favorite show. Starring in a show with a cultural magnitude of Superman, George struggled to find any work outside of it. He was also locked into a contract which made the prospects slim to none. He felt boxed in. The actor had garnished fame, but it wasn't the kind he had hoped for. Dreams of being recognized as one of the top actors in his craft, now he turned heads and they whispered, that's Superman. Though he grew to despise the adventures of Superman, George grew very close with his co-workers, especially Phyllis Coates, who played the original Lois Lane, and Jack Larson, who played Jimmy Olsen. Jack would especially become close to Reeves. He was like a son to both him and Tony. They would call him Junior. Friends became George's family. To them, he was loyal, loving, and protective. At the end of every season, George ceremonially would burn the Superman suit and cut out the S 
sending it to a fan. He took his image serious and didn't want young fans to ever see him smoking or drinking. He knew what Superman meant to them. 3,000 miles away in New York, no one wore a redder shade of lipstick than young socialite Lenore Lemon. That's not just a clever segue. Lenore actually had a shade named after her, Lemon Red. The name didn't stick, but the reputation of the young woman was notorious. Infamously, at 18, she was attached to the very public Paterno divorce case. Joseph Paterno was a real estate heir worth $63 million. She was his mistress. Lenore claimed it was simply business between the two, but a butler would testify that he had seen the pair in bed. She came from money and planned on keeping the lifestyle she found fit. Her time was as valuable as the gift she was bestowed by suitors. Lenore Lemon was a tabloid and nightclub fixture. Truly every night was a party. George would make peace with his mother in 1956. Perhaps it was that Helen was now worth $1 million. Regardless, they were on speaking terms. Helen made plans to visit during Christmas. George promised her surprises and a boat ride in Catalina Island. It proved to be disastrous, as the two women in his life didn't quite see eye to eye. It ended with Tony grabbing Helen a glass of water from the toilet. Mrs. Belso couldn't and never would accept her son was involved with a married woman. It was never spoken of to the extent she would write George Reeves an unidentified woman on the back of pictures that George sent. After seven years, 104 episodes, The Adventures of Superman was on hiatus. It was 1958 and George hadn't worked in almost two years. The money from the show had made him feel at least somewhat independent, financially, from Tony and his mother. Now, more than ever, he needed their support. Things between Tony and George had begun to fizzle. Tony may not have known that, but George felt it. The couple had purchased land on the top of Laurel Canyon with plans to build a life together, but there was only one problem, Eddie. His health was ailing, and after a few heart attacks, he was weakened, yet still ferocious. Tony's attention, which was often set to George, now called for her to help care for her husband. George grew tired of waiting for someone to die in order to live a normal relationship. In October of 1958, George was doing press in New York for Superman when he first met the woman with the reddest lips. It was a quick meeting taking place one evening at Toots Shores Nightclub, an all-men's club that featured a small roster of girls that took care of the patrons. Later that night, Lenore would visit George Reeves at his hotel with champagne in hand. George felt electricity and exuberance like he had never felt before. Lemon had wit and intelligence. She was exciting, connected, and 15 years younger. George fell hard. Weeks later, when he arrived back home, George took to breaking the news to Tony. Let's just say she didn't exactly take a grade. She, in fact, lost her mind. Day and night, she would spend obsessed telling friends, how could he let that whore into my bed? She was angry and bitter. In her mind, Eddie was about to croak, and she and George could live happily ever after. Now older, she had gave George the last glimmers of her youth, and more than ever, she felt alone. Months later, in January of 59, George headed into town to run errands. Along for the ride was his one-eyed schnauzer, Sam. He took his dog everywhere. Stopping to pick up a razor that had been repaired, George left Sam in the car. When he returned, the pup was gone. George located a policeman, but nothing could be done. Devastated, he drove around all day looking for his canine friend. Unbeknownst to George, Tony had followed him that morning from his house, and when he stepped into the shop on North Vine Street, 
She scoops Sam out of the car. George never saw Sam again, and nobody knows what became of the schnauzer. This obsession had become all-consuming. Tony called her former love nest nonstop, even hiring a worker named Santiago to make hang-up calls all day. It got so bad, George became paranoid, losing sleep. Eventually, enough was enough, and he filed a restraining order against Tony. He still let her pay some of his bills, though, his liquor tab especially. George was a productive drunk. He drank socially. He drank at work. He was so good at holding his liquor that it was hard to tell which mode he was in. By the last month of his life, the tab reached $600, in part due to the arrival of his new house guest. Lenore showed up on the front steps at the Benedict house, sitting on three suitcases. George couldn't believe it. He was shocked, nonetheless. He was intimidated by her aggressiveness, Reeves' friend Jean LaBelle would recall, but the actor was head over heels in love. The popular socialite loathed her new zip code. She was quick to mention she was from the Big Apple during introductions. She didn't like L.A. She didn't like the people. She didn't like anything about it. She felt superior to the bore that was Los Angeles. It had always been one of her wishes to settle down and be taken care of. And with George, she had found that. A slowdown was welcome, and Reeves did his best as well as his now fiancé. The last few months of his life were definitely lived out of his means. Lavish trips, expensive dinners, the barbecues George would have with friends, now replaced by drunk house parties filled with strangers. Friends of his would feel alienated, not seeing and rarely speaking to their old pal during those final months. By June, life was good for George Reeves, depending on who you'd ask. From all accounts, there was a lot to be happy about. The Adventures of Superman had been picked up for another 26 episodes. George, this time, now more involved with the shaping of the series, and promised several episodes to direct. Though he still loathed being Superman, he loathed it just a little less. He had also gotten back into boxing, signing on to do a tour of light exhibition bouts. His first was set days before his planned marriage on Friday the 19th. The fight was with Archie Moore. Robert Condon, an acquaintance of George's, was invited to stay with Reeves as Robert was doing an autobiography on Moore. Condon, during his stay, found company in neighbor Carol Van Ronkel, who had become friends with Lenore. Carol, during this time, chose to leave husband Rip home on her now more frequent visits. On the morning of June 15th, things did not start well. George received word that one of his exhibitions had been canceled due to poor ticket sales and more were backing out. The tour would have to be canceled. It was a devastating blow. Lenora spent the afternoon phoning those she had impulsively invited to a party she had planned that night. A locksmith worked changing the locks in the house. The newlyweds wanted to be sure that Tony Mannix wouldn't bother their home while they honeymooned in Spain. The locksmith would have to leave the job half done due to the rear double doors requiring a special lock. Lenora's last-minute plans for a party were a bust, so the couple headed out for dinner. The couple dined at Paul's Steakhouse. Afterwards, Lenore chatted with other patrons as George relaxed in the piano room. He enjoyed a drink and listened to Meryl Sparks play a set on the piano. Sparks would recant Reeves was completely composed and in great spirits. Around 9.30, Meryl was on a break when he noticed the couple waiting for their car. Lenore, noticeably heated, was laying into George, saying she wanted to get married in Baja, California. After pause, it's anyone's guess what truly unfolded, but let's start with the official account. At around midnight, George heads to bed, leaving Lenore and Robert. 
About five minutes later, Bill Bliss and Carol arrive. Bill Bliss, a neighbor about a mile up the canyon, had noticed light on outside and stopped in for cocktails. Lenore lets them in. George comes downstairs from the bedroom wearing a bathrobe. He's irritated and upset that guests would arrive at such an hour. An argument ensues between George and Bill. Things, though, calm, and George apologizes for his behavior, having a drink. Around 1.20, George excuses himself and heads back upstairs to bed. As he heads up, Lenore states, he's going to shoot himself. Shortly thereafter, they hear a drawer open. He's getting the gun out. Moments later, a shot is heard. Bill Bliss darts upstairs to the bedroom. There he finds George, nude, lying on his back across the bed. A large amount of blood is on the body and head. He retreats back downstairs, telling the others what he observed, and they call the police. Upon arriving, the police discover a 30 caliber German Luger knockoff lying on the floor between George's feet. The bullet had passed through the head and lodged into the ceiling. A single shell casing is found behind George's back. There is no note, no indication left behind on why George would choose death. This is where the story starts getting convoluted. The kitchen in the house looked like a distillery, bottles lining the counter. The people in the house that night were sloppy drunk, and it comes to light that the call to the police wasn't made for at least 60 to 80 minutes. What was going on in that hour? Why wait? When questioned, the responses seemed all too rehearsed. They all brought up George being unable to find work and how he was depressed. Something so personal, yet common knowledge. Even the crime scene raises suspicion. Suicide is a dramatic and angry action, so why did George choose it? And to do it with an audience downstairs, naked? Detective Sergeant Johnson, who had arrived on the scene, made note of this. The bedsheets looked pulled apart, stuck to Reeves' back. Even in his position in the bed, all raised questions for Johnson. If George had shot himself in bed sitting up, why was there a bullet in the ceiling? The entry wound was to the side of his head. Johnson remarked to his fellow officers, almost anything could have happened in the house. George's body is sent to the mortuary, where the body is embalmed. By law, all suicides, which his death is quickly ruled, are assigned to coroner's case and are subject to autopsy and complete forensic examination. The police, in their quick judgment, drop the ball. Helen receives news of her son's death quite early, and by 8 a.m., she sends a telegram to the funeral home to not cremate or touch the body till she arrives. The crime scene is never dusted for fingerprints, nor any photographs taken. Everyone is removed from the house, and a seal is placed on the front door to secure the house. By morning, George's body has been washed, and his entrance and exit wounds have been sewn shut with twine. The gun is oiled, so it's impossible to lift prints, though there was never any attempt to check for any. Quick judgment would make it impossible to tie up loose ends, leaving George Reeves' death with more questions than answers. As news spread of the death, close friends found it unbearable, but most of all, unbelievable. George depressed and angry? Lenore foreseeing him grabbing the gun but not stopping him? How could this be? One person who was convinced something else had happened was Tony. She had phoned Phyllis Coates around 4.30 in the morning, mere hours after police had arrived on the scene. She woke Phyllis up. Phyllis will remember, she was hysterical, almost hyperventilating. Tony said, the boy is dead. George is dead. He's been murdered. How is it that she got word of his death so early? 
Lenore had been hiding out at friend Gwen Daly's house, but the day after George's death, the two broke the corner seal and slipped into the Benedict Canyon house. Lemon said she wanted to grab George's cat, but along the way, she happened to grab the traveler's checks for their honeymoon, worth $4,000. Gwen took the blood-stained sheets off the bed, throwing them in the shower when she heard Lenore scream. George's manager and now executor had been sitting on the couch in the den watching Lenore raid the fridge and grab a bottle of scotch. He promptly told her to put everything back and that he was going to finish the job of getting the locks and all the doors replaced. He accused the two of tampering with evidence and asked them to leave and never return. Gwen dropped Lenore off at the Van Ronkels, where she made two calls, one to her lawyer and the other to Earl Wilson, a gossip columnist. She started by saying, what I went through this afternoon, telling of how she returned to the house to grab a few things, took off the bloodstained sheets out of disgust, and how Art had essentially pushed her out of the house. This was the start of the Mourn Me, Not George tour. She refuted the rumor that she had predicted the suicide and laid blame on Bill Bliss for embellishing the tale. Lenore quickly returned to New York City a few days later. She, along with Tony Maddox, didn't attend George's funeral and Lemond never returned to Los Angeles. Shockingly, George left the house, his car, and his entire net worth to Tony. Lenore, for the life of her, raged about this for years, and always claimed that she was rightfully owed something as there was another will, though by all accounts, the only will George ever drafted was the one read. He'd established it eight years before his death. Though the media labeled the death as bizarre, things eventually quieted, and the police showed no interest in moving away from their conclusion that the death was anything but a suicide. Helen hired an attorney and a private investigator to press on. She had a second autopsy done, but there was nothing to be found. George's blood alcohol level was said to be a 0.27. This is alcohol poisoning levels. Yet he was able to walk upstairs and kill himself, more so drive himself home from dinner, the day following the autopsy, Chief Parker was ready to be done with the case and Helen. But to satisfy her, he sent a sergeant back to the home to look it over. Sergeant V.A. Peterson, now standing in George's bedroom, rolled up the area rug. And there in the floorboard were two bullet holes. Following the trajectory through the floorboard, Peterson found the bullets. One lodged in the paneling over the living room fireplace and the second in a beam in the downstairs ceiling. Both bullets had been shot from the same gun that killed George. Chief Parker felt the new found bullets added nothing to the case and was satisfied with closing the case. He did phone Lenore, who by this time was back in New York grieving in seclusion with family. She claimed a few days prior she and George were playing around and she wanted to know what the gun sounded like so she let it off. George was a firearm collector, but it was said he was a responsible gun owner, never having any ammunition in the weapons for fear that someone might mess around with one at a party. When Tony Mannix had the home renovated, it was said the house was filled with bullet holes. See, that's the nature of this case, is one question opens ten more, and there's so many contradictions. So many contradictions. So many theories. Exactly. Time goes on. Helen's attorney and private investigator quit abruptly, and the case essentially fades away. Eddie Mannix died in 1963. A year later, George's mother passed, still believing her son was murdered. Tony Mannix never remarried. She would have weekly prayers for George and even had a small shrine of him. She would ultimately pass in 1983. 
Detectives, friends, and anyone associated with the Reeves case by the mid-80s all but a handful were still living. Time had caught up with Lenore, who by the mid-80s was a shell, if even, of her former self. Still living in New York City, this time alone in an apartment belonging to her former boyfriend, jazz booking agent, Jack Whitmore, who had died of a stroke. She was taken care of and spent her days swimming in cocktails. I was fortunate enough to make contact with a woman by the name of Elizabeth Dobricki, who worked for Jack and Lenore around this time. I asked her to share her experience with Lenore and if she ever mentioned her former fiance. Here's what she said. I worked for her boyfriend, the jazz booking agent, Jack Whitmore. I was in the apartment when he had his stroke. When Lenore first learned he had hired me, she invited me for a drink to kind of size me up, then told me not to tell Jack that she had done that. For some reason, I complied. She came to the bar located in her neighborhood wearing a skin-tight leopard print sort of jumpsuit. She was an older lady, and it was not really attractive in my opinion, but it was flashy. Jack used to pay her bills. I remember making a payment to a store that was storing her furs. After Jack was hospitalized, she was the one who fired me. She said she would take me to lunch, but she never did. She was inconsolable and went on about how we didn't know what it was like not to have someone to take care of you. She never mentioned George that I remember, but I never made the Superman connection until years later. She was entitled, and of course, it was all about her. Jack was a very sweet man. Lenore took advantage of him. In 1989, Lenore had entered the early stages of alcohol-induced dementia, but gave two interviews. I pulled together some of the more interesting tidbits, among them the reason for the delay to call the police. The popular belief is that Bill Bliss and Carol Von Ronkel arrived around the same time for cocktails after seeing the light on outside. Lenore would state Carol was already there in the guest room with Robert Condon. George was upstairs and cooled, Lenore's words when she phoned Gwen Daly. According to Lenore, Gwen got Carol out of the house. She insisted that Carol was out of the house when police arrived, and the police report was full of shit. She waited to call the police because she didn't want Carol's marriage to be ruined or for the press to know of her escapades with Robert. The other person to arrive was Polly Adler, former madame and longtime friend of Lenore's. Polly's car was reportedly seen at the house that night, and she was there to take Bobby out of the house, but later left with, without Bobby. There's a lot of contradiction between the two interviews most likely due to dementia. In the closing, she was asked, if you could talk to George right now, what would you say? I'd shoot him for being such a horse's ass. But what about Bill Bliss, the unknown neighbor who just happened to drop by a house that he'd never been to? Why would he go along with Lemon's story? Why would he say that she had foreseen George getting the gun? Years later, his story would change and he would claim there was a single gunshot and Lenore ran down the stairs after saying George had killed himself and that they needed to say that she was downstairs the whole time. I wish I could give you more in this episode than the contradiction and open ends, but that's all there really is in this case. We chose to keep out the long-jested theory that Eddie or Tony had been involved with the murder. There simply isn't any credible evidence to go along with it. If they were involved in any way, it would seem it would be to let the case and the story die so as not to bring attention to the fact that George and Tony had an arrangement. The papers had already pressed about why the married woman was bequeathed George's things. The studio quickly covered this up as Tony and George were involved in charity work together, and George saw it right to leave his worth to someone he respected. 
Lenore Lemon would drink herself to death on New Year's Eve 1989. Whatever more she knew about that night in June at 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive, she took with her to the grave. The tragedy of George Reeves are all the unanswered questions, the what could have been's. While he may have had a love-hate relationship with donning the Superman cape, the role immortalized him. And that, George Reeves lives on. 62 years later, The Adventures of Superman is still in syndication. Jim Nolte, a retired teacher and an editor of a fan magazine dedicated to George Reeves, was quoted, I remember my father was an alcoholic and not around much. As a kid, I adored Superman, wearing a bath towel as a cape around my family's farm, reenacting my favorite episodes. I think it was George and his influence, partially, that persuaded me to become a teacher. When I work with children, I can feel myself talking to them the same way George did. The saddest part in this is George never got to see just how impactful he was. I like to think that it would have made it all worth it in the end for him, and that he would have done conventions and learned to love being endured as Superman and by those who idolized him. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Final Hours. Special thanks to Jan Henderson, who is an expert on George Reeves, and his work and interviews were critical in our research, as well as the book Hollywood Kryptonite, written by Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger. I highly recommend these sources if you wish to learn more about this case and everyone associated with it. Also, a huge thank you to Elizabeth Dobricki for corresponding with us about her time with Lenore. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media at Final Hours Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Follow us on Patreon where we will be posting bonus content for each episode. This one especially, there's a lot to unpack. Till next time, live a life worth living. <laughs>